But you, Timothy, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and impostors will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they've given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and to equip his people to do every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 10-17. Alright, would you stand with me this morning? We today start in a brand new series. We just finished in the book of Galatians, and today we are beginning a series that's just called, What is the Church? And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at elements that take place inside the church. And today we're going to look at a very important one. We're going to look at the Word of God. We're going to see how it is central to all we think, all we do, all that we believe, that it's something that we hold to firmly as truth because it is God's word. And so I'm really excited for the series. What you just um, heard read to you is from the book of 2 Timothy, and it's Paul, and he's writing to someone who is like a son to him. Timothy's a son in the faith. It's It's not just some insignificant person. This is someone that he loves and has invested in dearly and has left as a pastor in Ephesus. And as he's writing to Timothy, what he challenges him, he says, there's going to come a time whenever there's going to be false teachers that creep in and they're going to teach false things and they're going to be deceived and they're going to deceive others. But he says to Timothy, you hold firmly to truth. Hold firmly to God's word because it is, the the scriptures are inspired by God. And so we're going to see how that is true and how the word that we hold out is so important for our lives. So let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you. We are thankful to be in this house, gathered together to worship you, spend time seeking your face. And Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us today through your word, that you would move in our lives, that you would challenge us and make us more like you. In your precious and most holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you grab a seat, if you would turn to somebody nearby you, and I want you to discuss what is your favorite movie scene of all time? Not favorite movie, your favorite movie scene of all time. Three, two, one, go. I figured that one was going to get some talking. (laughs) So, um, one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. I'm just throwing this out there. Two of the greatest movies ever. Home Alone 1, Home Alone 2. Okay? Okay. I love the Home Alone movies. Uh, The second one, there's this specific scene. If you don't know the premise of the story, first off, I'm sorry. You are tragically missing out on Christmas, okay? But in the second movie, these robbers are breaking in, and they're trying to basically harm this little boy named Kevin McAllister, and Kevin is smarter than they are. 
And Kevin's like, preach. <laughs> and, um, and, and the kid, he, he, um, he's constantly setting traps for them and trying to, um, like, stop them from doing what they're doing. And in this one scene, um, <laughs> he is, one of the robbers has fallen basically three stories through these floors. And he's assembled this various, it's like TVs and cardboard boxes and boxes and chairs, like to try to get to the top. Uh, he literally calls it salt as a rock. He climbs to the top, and as he's just about to get there, it all falls apart, right? And he's hanging, and he's like doing everything he can to get to the second floor, and he's watching what's happening and going down. I start there because I want to talk this morning about a firm foundation. Anybody in here ever played Jenga? Okay. I was the jerk who always took the bottom pieces out. You know what I mean? Some of you know me like, I'm not surprised by that, right? <laughs> no, but like uh, when you do that, when you start at the bottom of the foundation and you start to break it apart, bad things happen, right? See, the truth is this, is that we have a firm foundation, and that firm foundation is God's word. We need to establish a firm foundation. This is what um, Paul writes. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching— Actually, no, this is from Matthew chapter 7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. It's like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the wind beats against the house, the house will not collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and disobeys or doesn't obey it is foolish. They're like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rain and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. What Jesus is saying here is that his words, God's word, is like a firm foundation that we can build our lives upon. And that if we will do that, no matter what comes our way, whether, and, and I love this, it's not like he says, um, if the wind and rain comes, it's when. How many of you know you've been through some stuff? You've faced some tough things. Life is going to come at you. The truth of the matter is, is that when those moments come, it's the foundation that holds us together. But if we erode the foundation, the house will come down. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes and he says, But you, Timothy, must remain faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know that they're true. Because you can trust those who taught you. And they have taught you the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting in Christ. But the question we ask ourselves is, is it true? Can it be trusted? I grew up in a Christian home. I had great parents. Taught me the Word of God. Invested in me. Put that in me. Um, went to school and had the word of God put into me. But then um, I remember my, my freshman year of college. I went to the University of Akron, and I went and got my degree in history. And I remember going in and having, like, different professors and people come in and basically trying to erode everything that I had heard and everything I had learned to that point, telling me that everything that I believed was just like a mythological fairy tale. There was no evidence behind it. And Josh, you, if you believe what your parents have taught you all these years, then you're just an idiot that's following like a storybook that's not even remotely true. And I remember sitting in that classroom just devastated, going, is everything I've believed in a lie? Is everything that I've believed in to this point true? 
Now, here's what I love, though. Um, by being a history major, one of the things that I've learned is when you study history, you have to study all sides of it, right? See, the truth of the matter is, is that right now there is a war that is going on against the church, but also specifically against God's word. And what it always wants to do is it always wants you to look at just one side, never the other. Because the truth of the matter is, is that there is a massive Everest-sized mountain of historical truth and biblical accuracy to the text that you hold as being the true word of God. Okay, we're going to discuss and just dive into a little bit of that today. Um, we're hoping in the next few weeks or months, we're going to actually have like a, a deeper discipleship track that's going to take part on another night where we're going to go even way more in depth to that. So if you have any interest after the sermon today, hit me up. We're going to make it happen. It's going to be good. But I'm just going to give you a little bit today. But the truth that what I want you to walk away from today is I want you to walk away knowing that that book you hold in your hands is absolutely true. And it can be trusted. I remember it being attacked in high school. I went to um, a Christian school for a while. But then whenever I transferred here to Indiana, I ended up in an English class that um, my teacher required that the Bible be cited as a secondary source. Because she said there was not enough good evidence for it to be a primary source. She was an atheist teacher who hated the church, hated God. And I ended up getting a B instead of an A plus in that class because I went ahead and cited it as a primary source. Um, she didn't like that, but tough cookies. Um, <laughs> I remember going to college and being attacked in college. And my anthropology professor, my science professors, teaching again from an atheistic faith. And yes, I say faith because it still takes faith to be an atheist. Um, that the word of God was some fake, pathetic book in the fiction genre. And then now even in the world today, in the church world even, there's an attack against the authority of God's word from liberal theology that denies the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and basically holds to a truth that Jesus was just a really good guy and we should follow his teachings. See, now the problem is this, is that a lot of times what ends up happening is the greater issue is that we don't know both sides of the coin. We don't know the historical accuracy of God's word and so whenever we ask this question is it true and suddenly someone starts putting any kind of evidence in our hand that it maybe it's not it's like our faith just immediately starts to crumble um, many of you know that like I, I grew up like I said in a Christian home um, my teenage years I kind of walked away from the faith I, I played the good church kid um, on Sunday mornings but then I was somebody else completely throughout the week it wasn't until my junior senior year that I ended up coming back and whenever I came back I had some deep questions because I was on a journey of going, okay, God, if you're real, and if this is true, I got to know that I know that I know that this is true. I don't want to just follow something because somebody told me I should or because it seems like the right thing. I want to know that there is, again, as a, my, my degree is actually in history from a secular university. So that, that part of my brain's like, I got to know that there is accuracy behind this, that this isn't something that I've just been taught my whole life that could possibly be not true. And so what happens, though, is this, is that so many times whenever we start engaging doubt in the church, people can feel like, well, I, I feel like I'm supposed to just have faith. Can I tell you something? Yes, you need to have faith, but there's a lot of evidence to your faith. There is a lot, a huge amount of weight to what you hold to as true, historically, textually, what the Bible says. But what happens is, 
is that too often we abandon before looking at the mountain of evidence. We only look at one part. And this is why it's so important to be a part of a church that holds the Bible in a very high regard. You see, Glad Tidings, our, our mission statement is to develop biblically sound believers who reflect Christ's character. You cannot reflect Christ if you're not also biblically sound. We need to know what the Bible says, and we need to know that it is absolutely true. Again, luckily, I, I was a history major, and I knew you had to examine both sides. Um, but what I noticed is a lot of my friends walked away from the faith. And the reason they did is because this, at their moment of testing, they didn't really know what they believed to begin with. It was their parents' faith, not their own. They also knew very little about the Bible, how it was composed, why it is in the order that it's in, and, and how it even came into being. Again, we're going to talk a bunch about that at that course in the weeks ahead. So if you're interested in that, please, please hit me up. But what often happens is we hear a case of counter evidence to the Bible and suddenly we think that like maybe there's no actual evidence for everything I've believed in this whole time. But today is just a miniature snapshot. I want you to take a look at what the Bible is, why it's true, why it can be trusted, how it came into being, and what scripture says about itself. So let's start with what scripture says about itself. Okay? This is what scripture says. 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the dawn and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets through Though humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Timothy, notice what Paul says. He says, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have been convinced of because you know those whom you learned it. And you know from infancy, you notice how many times he's saying no, you know the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, what we need to know at the outset is this. The Bible claims divine inspiration. It says that this is God-breathed. That what we have is God literally speaking to mankind. It's a story of God's love for us. It's a reminder that God is for us and not against us, that he's come near through his son Jesus to rescue us. You see, we need to understand that the Bible sees itself that way. Peter and John both make claims that the Old Testament scriptures were divinely inspired and they spoke of Jesus. So the question becomes then is, okay, well, how was the Bible formed? You know, a lot of people don't actually know this, and this is one of the ways that... Um, the Christian faith is often attacked. It, it's, it goes something along these lines of like, it was a bunch of different guys who just came up with a bunch of different ideas and they wrote it down and blah, 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 right? They make it seem like it was this willy-nilly, like <laughs> without thought, without even being careful or anything in regards to that. L let me tell you, just, we'll start with just the Old Testament, okay? I want to give you a picture of just how carefully the scriptures have been preserved for you and I for today, okay? Scribes in ancient times, 
when they would be preserving and transmitting a section of scripture, this was a methodical and very painstaking exact craft. This was not something that they took lightly. In fact, before copying the text, the scribe would be required to take a bath and dress in a formal scribal attire. Editors examined every single page within 30 days of completion, and every letter of every word was counted and compared to its original source. Okay? And the reason for this is because they were so cared about the transmission of Scripture and the transmission of it being done accurately. They wanted to make sure only three corrections could be made on a single page. If there was more than three errors, like if you spelled Nebuchadnezzar wrong, that's one. <laughs> right? If there was more than three on your entire page, your scroll that you did as like the, the scribe, they would burn the whole thing. That's how seriously they took the transmission of Scripture. This was not something that was done willy-nilly. It wasn't something just, this was something that was painstakingly put together. In the Jewish community before the time of Christ, a book was only ever accepted as inspired Scripture if it contained compelling evidence of divine authority and the standards that canonicity depicted in the Old Testament. Let me give you a few of those. Was the book written by a prophet of God? That was the first. Did the book claim to be inspired by God and did it demonstrate evidence it was inspired? Did the message depict God consistently with all the other earlier revelations as required in Deuteronomy chapter 13? Did the book convincingly demonstrate the authority of God and was the book accepted by the people to whom it was addressed? Listen, I don't know if you know this, but in ancient times they kind of took prophecy a little bit more seriously than we do today. If you were a prophet and you made a prophecy and it didn't come true, you know what happened to you? You died. That's how serious that they took it. This was not something that was willy-nilly. It was not something that, in, in ancient times, for the Jewish people, as the Bible was being composed, especially the Old Testament, they scrutinized the books. They, they looked at every single one of them to make sure that it was divinely inspired before it would ever be allowed in the Old Testament canon. These books were not canonized. If There was other books that were never even put into the Bible because they weren't seen underneath those standards. So let's move to the New Testament. Most of the books in the New Testament were written between 40 A.D. and 100 A.D. All of them were written before 140 A.D. In order for a book to be able to make it into the New Testament, it had to have... Um, it had to display that it come from like an apostolic ministry or authority. In other words, if you remember from the book of Galatians that we just finished, Paul's consistently defending the fact that he's an apostle. There's a reason for that. Because not anyone could write scripture. It had to be with someone who was a part of like the 12 or had been with Jesus in his ministry that entire time, who had been there, who had witnessed and taken part in things. And so the apostle Paul was later... Jesus himself preached to the Apostle Paul, told him the gospel, and Paul goes on his missionary journeys. You see, the Apostle Paul ends up writing over half of the New Testament, and he defended his call and his title of apostle because he understood the words that he had and the importance. Jesus, to the church in Revelation, he applauds them for rejecting false teaching and teachers and denouncing those teachings. See, the truth is this. We have a very authoritative and reliable text that we can go on to. I want you to go back with me and remember back to English class. 
My English teacher looked at me and, and she said, you cannot use the Bible as a primary source because in her mind, she saw it as being discredited. I want you to look at the screen with me real carefully. The entire conversation was that the scriptures were unreliable. They had too many errors, according to her. It was something she was just spouting off because she'd been told to say that and told to believe that. I want you to look at this screen with me real quick. This is amazing. These right here are other books and things from antiquity. They tell you the work, the date that they were written, the earliest copy that we have, the time span of the different copies, the number of copies we actually have, and then the textual accuracy. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So like, let's say we'll take uh, Homer's Iliad. It was written in 900 BC. So we have 643 copies of Homer's Iliad, or not even full copies. It could be fragments, like maybe one page. And what they do is they take those 643 and they align them next to each other and they go, okay, does this page match this page and is it correct? Are the words the same? Are they, are, is it telling the same story? Is there a textual accuracy there? So that's what textual accuracy kind of looks at too. Okay, I want you to notice something. Homer's Iliad, we have 643 copies. And of those 643, there's about a 95% accuracy to them. Take a look at the New Testament. 25,000 plus copies. 25,000 plus with a 99.50% accuracy. So when you hear people spout off things like, well, the Bible is full of errors, what that means and what they're kind of saying is that this one scroll over here might have spelled this guy's name off by a couple letters. <laughs> than this scroll here. And so it looks a little bit different. That makes up that 0.50%. That's what we're talking about here. There is an overwhelming weight to the truth and reliability of the scriptures that we hold in our hands today. It has been faithful. And I want you to see one other final thing with me. The New Testament was written between 50 and 95 AD, less than a 25-year time span. We've got 25,000 different copies, and we have even closer earlier copies. Notice the difference here, 900 years for Caesar's Gaelic Wars. But you know what, English teachers, you can cite that as a primary source. Ever heard an English teacher ever tell you that you cannot um, cite Homer's Iliad as a primary source? And yet, Homer's Iliad has 643, or Josephus, there's nine total copies that we have. See, the truth of the matter is this, is that there is a massive weight of evidence that proves that what we believe in in the Bible you hold in your hands to be the true, reliable word of God. So the question we have is, like, what is the church? The church is the center for where we hold up this Bible as truth. There's a reason this pulpit's right here in the middle of the stage. The pulpit's in the middle because in the Protestant churches, we want the teaching of God's word to be centered all we think, do, and believe. If I ever start teaching something that's not the word of God, you need to run me out of here. I'm not joking. There's nothing more dangerous than false teaching. We believe in biblically sound, reflecting Christ. What we believe matters, and we believe is being based on determining what the scriptures say, not what our feelings or our culture says. At Glad Tidings, we want to hold God's word up to be held high. In truth, listen, uh, it's without error 
God's word is inspired by God. It is living, it's powerful, it is truth, and it changes us. We don't change it. It saves us, it rescues us. And this next week, we're going to look at um, preaching, and we're going to look at how important it is not to be taught false teaching. But even think about this from even our kids' ministry. We do the gospel project every single week in our children's ministry where they're systematically walking through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and they're seeing the weight and the importance of the overall story of God's word and how it connects to Jesus every week. Because we really do believe this. The church should always hold tightly to the power and the authority of Scripture because the Word is unchanging. Psalms 119.89 says, your eternal, world, your eternal Word, O Lord, stands firm in the heaven. I love this illustration that Peter Heck gives, and he talks about the importance of the fact that God doesn't change and His Word doesn't change. I want you to imagine with me real quick. I promise not to do anything to you, okay? Close your eyes. Okay, you're in a dark room, all right? I want you to imagine you're in this room by yourself. Your eyes are closed. All the lights are off. You're like almost like a blind person. And I asked you to feel around and try to figure out where you were in this room. Now open your eyes. How would you figure out where you are? Okay, that's a, there we go. I like that. It's a, it's a little bit cheating, but I like it. <laughs> no, that's right. It's kind of like if you're building a puzzle, what's the first thing you do? You do the edges, right? Right. So maybe if you're in this room, you kind of try to go and find, okay, if I need to figure out where I'm at, I'm going to go find a wall. Okay, I've got a wall. I've got a wall. I'm in a corner, right? But what if these walls are movable? That changes things. I cannot find my sense of direction, and I can't know where I truly am if my standard is constantly changing. The word of God doesn't change. Since the opening of Genesis to this moment in time, God's word has never once changed. It is true. It's living. It's mighty. It's powerful. And it's unchanging. And it's so important that we understand it's not changing. It's not based on my perception. It's not based on my thoughts. It's not based on my philosophy. It's not based on what I want it's based on the fact that it is truth and it's unchanging and that is vital for us to understand. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Can I tell you something? There's been a lot of Christians today who Satan has thrown out some strange new ideas. Any fishermen in the room? Right? The fish go after the good-looking bait. It's aimed at their desires. It's aimed at what the fish want. The problem is it's got a hook on the other end of it. Right? That's what false teaching does, and there's lots of it rampant all across the world and in the church even today but the word will never change but we should you heard me say that we will allow god's word to shape what we think do and believe i cannot try to make god's word conform to what i want when i do that false teaching heresy and idolatry naturally happen i must conform to what it says and that's not always easy there's been countless times i've read god's word and i'm like 
I wish it said something different. <laughs> that one hit a little close to home, Jesus. Can we? <laughs> That's a dangerous place to be. Secondly, the word of God is a revelation. James 1, 22 through 25 says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, and you forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. The word of God acts like a mirror. Some of you heard me tell this story before. It's a very embarrassing story. My freshman year of college, it was finals week, and I was stupid. I stayed up till 4 a.m. the night before. And I was having fun with my friends. We were playing some, like, Xbox. I think we were playing some Halo way too late into the night. And I forgot to set my alarm. Um, I wake up. I quickly look at the clock, and the exam has already started. Right? Now, luckily, I didn't live that far from campus, so I am frantically getting dressed, frantically getting ready. At the time, um, I did not have this gorgeous beard. Um, I had an electric shaver that I would shave with, and so I'm frantically shaving my face while at the same time I'm brushing my teeth. You know what I'm talking about doing like seven different things at once. I arrive on campus, I jump out of the car, I'm running to class, and I should have known by the looks something was up. I'm running to the campus, and I'm, I'm watching people, you know, they got their backpacks on, they kind of look up. Like one of those things, right? And I get to class, and um, I, I run in, I get to my chair, and my teacher walks up, sets my exam down, and then just quietly leans the mirror and goes, everything okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> I had shaved half my face. There was toothpaste stains on my shirt. My shorts were on backwards, and I had two different colors of pairs of socks on, right? This is one of the most embarrassed moments of my entire life. Like, I looked like an absolute hot mess. <laughs> and it all could have been avoided if I had just looked in the mirror. See, God's word is a mirror. And it reveals who God is. It reveals also what I look like. It says, Josh, this is who you are. And I'm able to see the image of God, and I'm able to say, God, would you change me and make me like you? But the thing is this, I need his word to reveal him to me. Because if not, then I can just create my own little genie in a bottle Jesus that I want to serve my wants, my needs, my desires. And then all I've done is I've created an idol that I'm serving. See, the truth is this. I, I, what's something that you um, read? What's something you're passionate about? You like music? You like to hunt? Okay. He's making arrowheads. So if I went around and I started just telling people, Red absolutely hates the outdoors. He's a vegetarian. <laughs> Some of you in this room are like, <laughs> right? He despises camping, um, loathes music. He thinks every single musician that their instrument should be broken and that they are worthless wastes of space. Right? There'd be a little anger in you, right? Yeah, he's angry at me now, and we're friends right now. Listen, because what I'm doing is I'm telling you something about him that's not true, but I'm identifying as if I really know him. If we start going around and saying, this is who Jesus is, this is who God is, and it's apart from his word, we're doing the same thing. 
because God's word reveals who he is. I do not have the right to go and make my own personal Jesus that I want to make him any way that I want. It's based off of who he truly is, and I can only know that by him being revealed to me through the word. The word acts like a mirror. See, because the word is how God is known. There's a difference between knowing about and knowing. There's a difference between knowing about and knowing. For instance, you can know all the stats, all the facts, watched every single one of Michael Jordan's basketball games ever. But if you walk up to him and try to shake his hand like you're his best friend in the world, his bodyguards will take you out. You might know everything about, but you don't actually know. See, God is known through his word. It's through his word that God is revealed. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. It's what the Holy Spirit does. In John 14, it says this, anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. This is Jesus speaking. He says, what I'm telling you is from the Father who sent me. I'm telling you these things now while I'm still with you. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and he will remind you of everything I've told you. One of the most beautiful things the Holy Spirit does is as we dive into God's word, the Holy Spirit keeps bringing it back to us. It brings truth back to us. It reminds us who God is. As a pastor, my greatest desire is that you would know and love God's word that you would know and love God with every ounce of your heart, that you'd be desperate for him. But can I tell you something? It is impossible to do that without being in God's word. And the word is also powerful. Went on a missions trip when I was 18. My parents just found this. Don't worry, I will not chop anyone. I promise. It's a machete. From El Salvador. How I got through customs with this. <laughs> Had to be pre-9-11. Because there's, I mean, but like all of us came back with these. Um, one of my favorite stories, there was a robber who uh, broke into this lady. Uh, it was a 72-year-old lady's house, I think in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, didn't end up so good for him. Because she had a machete. He'd broken in the week before. The next week, he tried to break into her bedroom, and she heard him on the outside. And rather than calling the police or doing anything else, she went and got her machete, which, by the way, she had nicknamed Rufus. <laughs> if you're going to name a machete, I cannot think of a better name than Rufus, right? She, so she said her and Rufus were waiting. As he tried to crawl through the window, she pulled out that machete and just started hacking him in the head. This dude's screaming and running. When the cops came, her... Her statement to the police was, he needs to go and get himself a job and do some better things with his life. But if he feels free to come back, her and Rufus would be waiting. Okay? Now listen to me. God's word is described as a sharp, double-edged sword. Paul, when he's talking about the armor of God, there's one offensive weapon. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When Jesus was tempted by Satan himself, you know, Jesus, he didn't go, hey, I'm Jesus, walk away. He said, it is written. Jesus attacked Satan the same way you and I will. He pointed back to God's word. You know what book he pointed back to? Deuteronomy. He, every attack that Satan came at him with, Jesus picked up his sword, the word of God, and said, get back. 
you're going to have some tough days. You're going to face things that are beyond you. There's going to be moments where the hurt feels more than you could possibly bear. There's going to be times when the winds and rains of life pick up at a torrential torrent where you feel like you're in a hurricane. Where you're getting hit from every single side. Can I plead with you? It's so important that now, not then, now you build your foundation on the bedrock. Get into God's word. Build the house of your life on truth. Because here's the thing, when the winds and rains come and when those moments happen, and they've happened in all of our lives, I don't have to sit there and be questioning, does God love me? Because I can go back to my bedrock and go, God is for me, not against me. That God saw me at my worst and he declared over me my best. That even now in the midst of this trial where it feels like everything is going against me, what I know that I know that I know is truth is the fact that God loves me. Not only does he love me, but he understands my pain. He's with me in the midst of it. The whole reason that Jesus Christ came to this earth and took on flesh is so that he could identify in, that he could be with us. Not, he could rescue us, yes, from our sin and our brokenness, but also we have a great high priest who absolutely understands our weaknesses. He was tempted in every single way just as we are. He allowed himself to face everything. Listen, Jesus got splinters. He stubbed his toe in the middle of the night. You know what I'm talking about? That's a different kind of pain. I've broken bones that didn't hurt as bad as that stubbed toe, right? I'm, I'm ready to th throw things around the kitchen, right? Jesus knows what that stuff's like. He willingly allowed himself to face our experience so that when you and I are at the absolute worst life can throw our way, we have a bedrock in Christ and in his word. But I can only know him and I can only have the power to know him if I'm in his word. See, that God's word is powerful because it's a source of wisdom. It holds the promises of God. It's unchanging. The word has the power to shape us and change us if we will dive into its depths. But I want you to think about one thing with me. Um, if I give you this machete, Devin, and I say, I, I want you to use this to defend yourself, but you never, ever pick it up. And when that day comes and someone attacks you, and you tried to go at them full bore without it, and there's three of them, who's going to win? Okay. If I give this to you, and you take it, but you never learn or do anything with it at all whatsoever, you're still practically still defenseless. But if instead I take this, and every single day I, I work with this, right? And Devin becomes Devin Ninja. <laughs> right? He's like, I like where the story's going. <laughs> right? A whole team of people can break into your house, and it's like, what's out? Right, you're ready to go, right? It doesn't matter. And the thing is this, you have the power to face your enemy based on how well you are to wield it. God's word is living, it's mighty and powerful, but we've got to get it in us. We've got to get it. We've got to, listen, church, we need to be in God's word daily. Even if you don't understand it, get into it. 
Because it will, that's why we did the whole book of Galatians. We went through the whole thing. Because I, my guess is that most of us, if we would just dive into Galatians for the very first time ever, there'd be lots of parts where we're like, why is that there? But now we've just spent the entire summer going through it, and suddenly that book is like a sacred treasure to us. Suddenly we're like, God, I am saved by grace alone. Right? The, the, there's a part of our heart that rejoices because we know the truth of it because we dove into its depths. In the church... The word of God is taught. In the church, we hold it high. Because lastly, the word should be our delight. Worship team, if you want to come to the stage. I'm going to ask you to go into your imaginations with me. Or not imaginations, I'm asking you to go into your memories with me. I want you to think of the best meal you've ever had. The best meal you have ever had. I'll be honest, for me, it probably has something to do with fried chicken. If I could have one meal before I would die, it'd be fried chicken and a ribeye steak together. Um, we get a little crazy when we've had really good food we tell everybody if you go to a restaurant that like the food was just absolutely so good almost everywhere you go like you can't stop talking about it You're, you want your, your friends and your best friends to go experiencing it you become the greatest billboard advertiser for that restaurant ever because you're, you're, you found a delight maybe it's a dessert maybe it's that like Nana's peanut butter oatmeal cream pie that perfect level of icing between the two maybe and you take that first bite and you're like this is the greatest thing I have ever had like it's like a holy moment you're just like let me just sit here for a bit right this is what I love listen to me David writes and I would encourage you to go home today and read it it's going to take you a little bit of time in the book of Psalms there's a chapter it's 119 it's the longest chapter in the whole Bible and in this chapter David continually writes of his absolute deep love and admiration for God's word. It's over and over and over him gushing over God's word. Read with me. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Church, God wants you to delight in him. He's the lover of your soul. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be so shaped by your relationship with him that the way you interact with people is different than before. That you're so changed from the inside out. But we're changed often by what we find our delight in. And the word should be our delight as we dive into God's word, as we see it speaking to me, as I see it challenging me, I make changes. As I see it encouraging me in those moments that it seems like the darkest of nights, I go over that scripture and I remind it. I hold its truth and its promises 
near and dear to my heart because it's mighty, it's living, and it's powerful. Listen to me. I, there's been times in my life where I felt like the waters had risen above my head that I could barely keep myself afloat. And in the moment of that, in that instance, it wasn't my thoughts or my abilities that could do anything to steady my emotions. Instead, I planted myself firmly on the bedrock and I reminded myself of what Scripture says. And I did what Scripture says. I went to Philippians chapter 4, and instead of dwelling on everything that was negative, I took my thoughts and I said, no, 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 I'm going to do what Scripture says. I'm going to fix my thoughts on things that are true and that are good and pure and honorable and excellent and praiseworthy. And when I do this, the God of peace is going to guard my heart and mind. You know what that is? That's Scripture. I'm leaning on that because it's true. It's God's Word. And it's not going to let me fall. And in that moment where I felt like I had nothing left, and suddenly it's like, it's like getting a big deep breath of air. God's word. Oh, church, if we would just grab hold of it and embrace it and hold it as truth, there's so much truth here. Like I said, there's going to be days here in the near future where we're going to dive into I can't wait. Um, if you're here and you're kind of like your interest peaked and you're like, I'd like to know more about even the reliability of Scripture. Listen, I cut out like 13 pages of notes. So I would love for you to come back and hear those 13 pages. <laughs> but today, can we delight? Can we delight in God as he reveals himself to us? Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to close on a song we sang earlier. It's just called, it goes, this is the air that I breathe. But I love it. It goes to the next line. It says, this is my daily bread. Not my monthly bread, not my weekly bread, <laughs> not my occasional throughout the year. This is my daily bread. It's your word living in me. Church, can we make God's word a priority in our life? Can we, can we allow it to shape our lives, to shape what we think, what we do, what we believe? Can we allow it to shape every aspect of who we are? Because here's the truth. There's going to come a day when you're going to need that weapon. And I want you to be skilled with it. When the enemy comes at you and he tries to either tempt you or he tries to take scripture twisted to make you believe something that's false, I want you to be able to fire back at him and say, no, 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 this is the word of God, enemy. This is truth. But if we're going to do that, it's got to be a part of our lives. What is the church? The church is the place where we hold up the word of God as living, as powerful, and true for our lives here, this is the place that we believe in developing biblically sound believers who reflect Christ's character, but we cannot reflect him if we have not been become biblically sound. So let's collectively today pray and say, God, make me a deeper follower of you. Lord, I pray, make me desperate for you again. Let me delight in you again. Father, I come before you this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you did not leave us alone or abandoned, that you gave us your word that is mighty, it's powerful, it's true. It changes us from the inside out. It makes us more like you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be shaped and molded by it, that we'd become, Lord, closer followers of you, that we would delight in you because we've delighted in your word. 
Today, Jesus, would you make us like that? Would you make us a people desperate for your presence? In your name we pray, amen.